Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I may have mentioned at some point in the past, I'm Hub, and I hope you're having a fine time whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing pretty good. I normally try to leave the uh, asking you to do stuff for us part until the very end of the show, but uh, what the fuck? It's our birthday! Yeah, the show first went up three years ago today. So, uh, happy birthday to us. If you feel like getting us a present, we got that, uh, Patreon page at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. Or, uh, tell a friend about us, or promote the show in some way, or set up a scavenger hunt. Or, eh, maybe don't do that last one. Those things always make me a little bit uncomfortable, because... I mean, by their definition, scavengers don't really hunt. They, they just kind of find stuff. And also, if you were doing a real scavenger hunt, it wouldn't be like, oh, you need coasters from three bars. It would be like, oh, you need a goat carcass and like a raccoon that got run over. And I, I don't want those things. I'm sorry. I, I mean, I appreciate the thought if you went out and got me a goat carcass. I, I, I'm, I'm not really eating red meat right now, so... And even if I did, I probably wouldn't want that much goat. So, you know what? If you if you did go and get us a goat carcass, I don't really understand your thought process, but thank you. And really, you should keep that goat carcass for yourself because you guys are a big part of this show. Not specifically just people who get us goat carcasses, but uh, the listeners and all of you. And it's been a wonderful journey and i've really dug it and so thank you for being a part of this everybody so in summation thank you so much for being a part of this show and if you want to do nice things for us that would be great and no goat carcasses please or dead raccoons thanks you want to talk about a comic book all right without any further ado let's uh do this Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Grant Richter. Star fire absorbs your language with a real hot kiss. If you're a little tongue-tied, here's a synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Grant. New Teen Titans, number 38. January, 1984. Who is Donna Troy? Written by Marv Wolfman. Drotted by George Perez. Inkted by Romeo Tangal. Colorded by Adrienne Roy. Letterded by Ben Oda, and edited by Len Wein. Teen Titan Roll Call, Wonder Girl, Robin. That's it. Previously in the New Teen Titans. Dick Grayson, a.k.a. Robin, had been undergoing an existential crisis lately. Ever since the boy Wonder's mentor and adopted father, the Batman, acquired a shiny new teenage orphan boy, Dick had been acting even more appropriately named than usual and lashing out at his teammates. The young detective's adolescent assholery reached its apex when Dick started palling around with world's worst district attorney, Adrian Chase. When Chase started executing mobsters as a masked vigilante, adopting the imaginative moniker Vigilante, Dick finally realized that he'd been acting like a real piece of shit lately. Hooray! Meanwhile, Wonder Girl found herself on the receiving end of a marriage proposal from a longtime boyfriend, Terry Long. The teenage crime fighter had some misgivings about marrying the divorced college professor. I can't imagine why. Well, it turned out that the Amazonian adolescent was experiencing some existential angst of her own. 
Before being adopted by the Amazons of Paradise Island, Donna was rescued by Wonder Woman from a burning apartment building. The star-spangled superheroine searched for any records of Donna's parents, but to no avail. When she moved to New York as a teenager, Donna took up the investigation herself. But, like her mentor before her, the connubially cautious crime fighter found her quest for finding her family fruitless. After some soul-searching, Donna decided to postpone her parental pursuit and accept Terry's proposal. God zooks! How will Dick and Donna dispel their respective existential angst? Will Robin finally apologize for being such an asshole? And is Wonder Girl's interest in her inexplicably absent ancestors the reason she ended up with a father figure for a fiancé? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so, by solving a mystery, hooray! Actually, yes, hooray! And gross. I mean, maybe, but gross. Dick Grayson sits alone in the dark in his stylish penthouse apartment, drinking coffee and looking at photographs of his friends. After staring thoughtfully at his desktop for a second, he reaches for his tape recorder and presses play so that he can listen to his favorite jam a tape of himself talking. Once Dick is grooving to the soothing tones of Dick's voice, he stares off wistfully into the middle distance and starts reminiscing. About another time he stared off wistfully into the middle distance. A few days ago, Dick was at the beach, decked out in his Robin outfit, and staring wistfully into the middle distance, thinking about how overwhelming his life could be and how nice it was to be alone. Robin's moment of costumed introspection was interrupted by the arrival of Wonder Girl's fiancé, Terry Long. The bearded divorced dad approached the boy detective and asked for a favor. Does he want to know the new hip young slang so that he can better relate to his teenage bride? No, which is a real shame, because Dick knows some pretty ginchy and gear lingo, and Terry's probably still using the word music when he could say jive. grown-ups, am I right? Rather than some much-needed slang lessons, Terry desires a different sort of information. Seeing as how Donna is still uncomfortable with the ongoing enigma of her origin and Ancestry.com isn't a thing yet, Terry wants to hire Robin to find out the truth about Donna's past. Robin agrees, and the two dudes head back to the city to meet up with Wonder Girl and inform her about the life decision they have just made on her behalf. When they get to Donna's apartment, the Amazonian adolescent is skeptical as to Robin's ability to find out anything useful about her past. She had been trying for years and come up empty. Another reason for Donna's pessimism is how little information there is for Robin to go on. I mean, Donna Troy isn't even her real name. It's just a name she chose at random when she wanted to get an apartment back in Teen Titans number 22. Man, when you consider that that issue came out in 1969, she could have done a lot worse. I mean, I could easily envision a scenario in which this issue is titled, Who is Winter Meadow Dawnflower? Anyway, Winter Meadow, I, I mean Donna, sets her expectations appropriately low, and fills Donna in on the scant information about her past that she is privy to. Wonder Woman rescued her as a toddler from a burning building. The landlord said that the unit she was found in was unoccupied and unrented. Wendy adopted the terrified tot and brought her to Paradise Island to be raised by her mom, Hippolyta. The Amazons zapped her with their all-purpose nonsense device, the Purple Ray, hooray, to give her superpowers, which is apparently a thing that it can do. It can also heal any wound, resurrect the dead, and blow up shadow monsters. It also makes a great floor polish and is delicious on waffles. Then, as a teenager, the now super-powered Amazonian adoptee moved to New York, joined the Titans, fought some crime, made up a name for herself, found employment as a fashion photographer, got engaged to a not-at-all-creepy college professor, and as a hobby does a little grief counseling on the side. 
When Donna finishes her exposition dump, Robin turns to her and Terry and informs the engaged couple that he'll take the case, and he'll do it for them as a wedding present. Aw, sort of. I mean, that's sweet and all, but the dude is the adopted son of a billionaire. He could do the investigation as a favor and still get them a wedding present. I mean, if I had as many super rich friends as Donna and Terry, I would be putting, like, talking helicopter and robot butler on my wedding registry. Donna is canonically pals with the richest and therefore most trustworthy man in the world, Mr. Jupiter. Beast Boy's adopted dad, Steve Dayton, is the fifth richest man in America, and I bet Bruce Wayne is pretty high up on that list, too. How many chances to score some astronomically expensive swag is a dude like Terry going to get? Do you have any idea how long you would have to save up to buy a robot butler on a community college professor's salary? Later that night, Robin and Wonder Girl go to explore the wreckage of the burned-out apartment building where Donna had been found years ago. After a few minutes of sifting through the ashes, Robin unearths a sealed coal bin. Upon opening it, the teenage sleuth finds a pristine copy of Donna's adoption records and a map to her birth parents' house. Okay, no he doesn't. But almost as good, he finds a battered rag doll. Unsurprisingly, Donna finds the doll unsettling. Duh. I've never seen an old doll that wasn't unsettling. Them shits are usually haunted. But what sets Donna aback is more than the inherent creepiness of antique playthings, but rather the fact that the doll seems very familiar to her. Familiar and important. Hmm. The next stop on the Super Sleuth Express is the home of the apartment building's owner. The current landlady of the dilapidated domicile is a cranky middle-aged widow who inherited the building from her husband Sam when he died. She informs the two that she doesn't know shit, and that the aforementioned Sam was a real piece of crap who was always doing illegal stuff. Donna is dismayed by the apparent dead end, but Dick takes the doll back to his apartment and does science at it. After a couple of days and many sciencings, Dick unearths three important facts about the doll. One, the doll had writing on its leg that read, From Uncle Max of Mystic Mountain, Newport News. B, the doll still looks creepy as fuck. And three, inside the box in which the creepy doll was found was a name tag that read, Hello, my name is Donna. Hooray for science! Not wanting to raise his teammates' hope unnecessarily, Dick journeys alone to the town of Newport News, where he finds a toy shop called Mystic Mountain. So wait, is the town called Newport News? Or is the town called Newport, and in the DCU there's a U.S. state called News? There's no comma, so I'm going to assume it's the former, but either one of those options is weird. Okay, it turns out that Newport News is a real town, and it's in Virginia. As will be apparent later on in the show, that fact is new information to both myself and Corey that we did not have at the time of the original recording. Sorry about that, Newport News residents. Dick talks to the toy store's proprietor. In fiction in general, but especially in comic books, toy store owners tend to come in one of two varieties. Either they are kindly and old, or they are insane and murderous. Fortunately, Max seems to fall in the first category. Whew. Max tells the young investigator that he recognizes the doll. He used to do free toy repair for the local orphanage, and when he did so, he would sign the toy, Uncle Max, so that the children would feel like they had some family. Aww, I'm going to be so disappointed if this dude turns out to be murderous and insane. Max goes on to say that the orphanage closed down about 15 years ago, over a child slavery scandal. 
Oh, so I guess this whole story isn't going to be heartwarming. Dick does a little more research and finds that the woman who ran the orphanage, an Elmira Cassidy, was cleared of all charges. After a bit of legwork and a few dead ends, he finds a man who used to work as a gardener at the orphanage. The gardener tells him that Mrs. Cassidy is now living in a nursing home in Florida. Figuring that the director of the orphanage from which she was adopted represents a more solid lead, Dick is now okay with getting Donna's hopes up. The two titans fly to Florida and head to the nursing home to speak with Elmira Cassidy. The staff informs him that Elmira hasn't spoken in nearly ten years. They decide to give it a go anyway. When they first approach her, the elderly woman is predictably unresponsive. Then, Dick gets out a briefcase and clicks it open. Is... is he trying to bribe her out of dementia? It turns out no, although that would have been a pretty bold move. Dick reaches into the briefcase and retrieves the battered doll he had found at the burned-out apartment. Yeah, that tracks. I bet when Dick was growing up, he totally used to carry his toys to school with him in a briefcase. As soon as she sees it, Elmira recognizes both the doll and Donna and starts filling in the bewildered bride-to-be about the details of her early life. For starters, it turns out that Donna's real name is... Wait for it... Donna! Well, that's convenient. Donna's mom was a beautiful single mother who loved her very much, but died of cancer when Donna was just a baby. It was she who gave Donna the doll. Donna wasn't at the orphanage very long. Within the year, she was adopted by a nice young couple named Mr. and Mrs. Stacy. Man, things do not seem to go well for comic book characters with the last name Stacy. Donna is overjoyed to have the information that Mrs. Cassidy was able to provide her and vows to visit the elderly woman frequently. At Donna's insistence, she and Dick fly back to the oddly named but totally real town of Newport News, Virginia, so that she can explore the town in which she briefly lived. After they drive around the town for a minute, Donna abruptly and instinctively makes a turn into a suburban cul-de-sac and finds herself stopping in front of one particular house. She insists that it is the house her adoptive parents lived in. And it turns out she is absolutely right. When Donna gets out of the car, nervously clutching the newly reacquired ragdoll, the woman raking leaves outside instantly recognizes her as Donna and starts crying and runs to embrace her. What? But I thought the Stacys were dead. Well, it turns out I was only half right. To the bewilderment of her family, the leaf-raking lady insists that Donna and Dick accompany them inside so that they can join them for coffee and tearful exposition. The woman explains that her name is Faye Evans, nee Stacy. She and her former husband, Carl Stacy, adopted Donna when she was a baby. The three Stacys lived together happily for a couple of years, but then Carl died in an auto accident and Faye could no longer afford to care for Donna. The lawyer from the adoption agency, a Mr. Harrison, insisted that Donna be handed over to him so that she could be placed with another family. Grief-stricken and unsure what else she could do, Faye complied. She eventually met her current husband, a dude named Hank, and they had a couple of kids of their own. She never told Hank about Donna, but he seems pretty chill about it and tells Donna that he hopes she will consider the Evans her family. Faye gets out some old scrapbooks she had hidden away that contain pictures of Donna as a baby. Donna is beside herself with joy and tearfully embraces the Evanses. But the unexpected family reunion has another side effect as well. All this remembering stuff puts Donna's subconscious in a remembering mood. She suddenly recalls that after Carl's death, she was taken by a second couple. They were jerks and hit her. It was they who died in the apartment fire. Hooray! When he hears about the second set of adopters, Dick leaves Donna and the Evanses and does a bit more investigating. 
His snooping uncovers that the lawyer, Mr. Harrison, is now in prison for being a piece of shit. It was Harrison who, unbeknownst to Elmira Cassidy, was secretly running a child-selling ring out of the orphanage that Donna had lived in. After changing into his official short shorts so as to properly intimidate the jailbird, Robin pays Harrison a visit. After some light coercion, Harrison confesses that the couple who died in the fire were his go-betweens, who would pose as the child's parents before selling them to the highest bidder. When Robin leans a bit harder on the shitheel shyster, he learns the name of Donna's birth mother. The next day, Dick and Donna visit the gravesite of one Dorothy Hinckley, Donna's mother. After Donna places flowers on the grave, she thanks Robin for all the detective work he has done on her behalf. When she does so, Dick reveals that he has one more gift for her. Ooh, is it that talking helicopter I mentioned earlier? It is not. Dick had taken the doll he found back to the toy store and had Max restore it to its original condition. Aww. I mean, all things considered, I'd still rather have a talking helicopter, but the doll thing's nice too. We cut back to the darkened apartment from the opening scene and see that Dick is pushing stop on the tape player which he had been using to listen to himself narrate. The boy wonder is done staring off into the middle distance. After one more glance at the setting sun, Dick picks up the phone to do something he should have done a long time ago. Apologize to Starfire for being such an asshole. Hooray! And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? I'm better now that that fly is gone. There was a fly in here, you guys, and it was loud. It was loud as balls. That's not an appropriate That's metaphor. As loud that as means nothing. Loud as they can be. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I liked this comic book. I liked it so much. It was very, very good. Let's start off where we started off on the comic book. The cover. <laughs> what? It's I I get what you're saying. It took me a minute, but I I'm right there with you. Okay. I liked the cover a lot. It's really good and it's really different looking than any of the Teen Titans covers we've gotten before. I found myself wondering who the artist was and being surprised when I found that it was George Perez. Me too. I think it, it's a different medium than he's done the other covers, and I think it, it looks painted. I think it's a watercolor, actually. I could totally be wrong about that, but it looks really cool. It looks almost like a Bill Sienkiewicz style thing, where there are some aspects of more realistic drawing style rather than comic book art. But then there's also some, like, weird, fuzzy, lined darkness in it that's really cool looking. Yeah, I was trying to figure out, like, I, I did the same reaction. I double-checked the credits. I was like, is this Perez? Yeah, it is. Okay. And then I was running through, like, what could have caused this to happen? Did he just, like, get a bottle of whiskey and watch film noir movies, like, all week? And then was like, I'm doing something different. I think maybe. It's really cool. It actually, pretty soon in the issues that we're getting to, we're going to get... The New Teen Titans Volume 2, which this series is going to continue, but it's going to be called Tales of the New Teen Titans. And so there are going to be two concurrent Teen Titans series running. But the covers for New Teen Titans Volume 2 are going to look much more like this. They're going to be either painted or done with pastels or something. Uh, and they're very cool looking, but also just very different. Yeah, this works for the type of noir thing that this issue is clearly going for. And you get the three pictures of Donna Troy, uh, first as Wonder Tot, and then as Wonder Girl, and now as her new, older, second costume version of Wonder Girl. And it's really cool. Now that I'm staring more intently at the cover, it's not apparent what Detective Robin is doing. Is he dowsing? 
No, no, that that is not a dowsing rod he's holding. That is, in fact, the doll from the issue. Oh. Its head is leaning back, and that's its dress. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. He does have a lot of tricks in that uh, both literal and metaphoric utility belt of his, but I do not believe that dowsing for water in the 1800s is one of them. I bet there, he could there, find a well if he needed to. Present-day dowsers. Do they still use a slingshot with no elastic in it? I think they just like a, like a stick that's shaped like a Y. Yeah, that's what I said. A slingshot that's... with no elastic in it? Yeah. Oh. See, when you said that, I thought of the uh, wrist rocket slingshot of our youth. Right. Did you not have youth. one of those? No, no. Oh, man. I bad. had a more supervised childhood than yours. The ri- you could kill things with the wrist. Yeah. Like small things, like squirrels. But Did you? Oh, I was never good enough to hit anything moving. That's for the best, probably. Yep. But yeah, I don't think he's using one of those. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's good. Safety I, first. I bet he does have one of those wrist rockets, though. I bet he's got a super duper wrist rocket. Uh-huh. Mm. At that point, if you got a super duper wrist rocket, you, you probably should just use a gun. Mm. I know Batman is, like, opposed to them, but if it's doing the same job, what's what's the difference? It's just a different shaped gun at that point. I don't know. I, th- I think maybe it's just like a, like a non-lethal, like, extremely irritating pelting sort of device rather than a, something that would cause okay if a regular wrist rocket can kill small animals a super duper wrist rocket would kill the human humans animal? the exactly the oh. most dangerous game of all <laughs> all right that's fair okay yeah then just get a gun whatever i don't know maybe you save it on bullet yeah i guess we just need the little round part at the end you just need like pebbles this the wrist rocket came with you could get these they look like the balls that go inside a pinball machine oh like just a giant ball bearing mm-hmm hmm yeah. I think that would probably be about as expensive as bullets. Yeah, okay, never mind. So there's no upside to a super-duper wrist rocket. I'll get back to you on that. I'm not ready to concede okay. defeat okay. yet. Fair enough. Once we get entered a comic book, it continues to be very good. The opening and closing scene, it's like a Sam Spade novel mixed with a Nagel print. It's both super noir and super 80s. Scenes like this get described as being cinematic very often, and I understand that, but there's something about it to me that is just very comic book, and I feel like it almost is served better by that medium and a better description of this medium than it is to say cinematic in terms of it tells a story with its pictures in a very specific way, and it has a very noir feel to it, and I just like it a lot. Yeah, those two segments, the beginning and the and then the closing one, were awesome. What you just said makes sense to me, but it did seem really cinematic in the sense that it reminded me of some storyboarding. I had this uh, Blade Runner sketchbook that was like all the illustrations that were done to make the props and kind of mm-hmm. set up the scenes in the movie. And it kind of reminded me of this because it had that sort of 80s yeah, feel to it as I well. Yeah, I can understand that. It, it's... The thing it reminded me of as much as anything else is there's a very famous Jim Steranko sequence in an early Nick Fury book where it's there's no words being told, but like this montage of very stylized images is telling a very specific story of like by focusing on events around the room, you can tell that this couple is having sex, basically. And it reminds me of that where it's just like it's focusing like you see... Dick pressing play on his tape recorder, and it took me a while to figure out whose apartment he was in. Like, he looks at a photo of Donna Troy, 
then presses play and sits down and he's like drinking coffee alone in the dark while he's doing it. It's just a very odd and very contemplative scene. But when you get into the specifics of what ha what's happening in it, it's actually a little bit confusing. So I guess what he is doing is playing back for himself tapes that he has previously made of the Donna Troy case that he was working on and trying to find her parents. I think that might be with what we know about Dick Grayson from these comic books. Not an unusual activity for him to just like zone out and listen to himself, tapes of himself talking. Sitting in the dark. Yeah. Potentially in... Just brooding. Either Cory's, Coriander's apartment or or Wonder Girl's room. Yeah, I think it's actually his apartment. I know, but I had the same But yeah, I was just I, like, wait, so she hired him to find her parents, and so he's, his first step is to break into an apartment and go through her shit? She gave him permit? What, what's going on here? Because yep. part of what is confusing about it is that there are no lights on. Like, it is clearly a very dark scene where this is happening. But, as I said... I still love it. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we learn in this issue is that uh, we got some shifts going around when we look at the Teen Titan orphan leaderboard that's going up there. And Gar, I still think, is in the lead, but it is getting a hell of a lot closer <laughs> because Donna Troy is at least a double orphan. I think she's now two and a half orphans because mm. she was orphaned by her mother mm -hmm. who brought her into the orphanage mm -hmm. and then she was adopted by a couple and then the father from that couple died and she went back to the orphanage mm -hmm. so that's one and a half okay. or orphanings and then the evil couple that adopted her to sell her to another couple they both died mm -hmm. so that's two and a half orphans i think gar is at three maybe three and a half but it is getting close that's true how do you think he feels about that i think uh uncomfortable i think a little bit yeah, that's his little piece of the spotlight, you know? Yeah, I wonder if he's like, hey, uh, Donna, maybe you could use that purple ray on, uh, on one of those guys. Bring him back to life. Just like, I know I've got like a half game lead on you, but I'd, I'd feel a lot more comfortable if I had a full set of dead parents on you. Mm -hmm. So maybe they can use the purple ray to bring one of her sets, or at least half of one of her sets of parents back. We did learn a little bit more about the workings of the magical purple ray in this comic book. Did we? I, I learned something that maybe I had learned before and forgotten about. That how, it can also give people superpowers? That the way in which it did that was by siphoning off a tiny bit of all of the other Amazons and putting them into Donna. That is new. I had actually missed that upon reading this. Hmm. So this story is a direct follow-up to a story that was published in 1969, which was also written by Marv Wolfman, um, which was a like three or four page backup story called The Secret Origin of Wonder Girl, mm -hmm. which was kind of a misnomer because all it revealed was that she had a mysterious upbringing where she was a human kid whose parents died mysteriously in a fire, they think, and nobody knew who they were. And then she was brought to rescued by Wonder Woman and brought to Paradise Island and raised there. We also learned in that issue, and this is what's kind of weird, that was the first time. It was issue 22 of the original Teen Titans series. And that was the first time when Donna Troy got the name Donna Troy. Before that, she was only Wonder Girl. Which means that, like, for 16 years, these Amazons who raised her never gave her a name. Despite her saying that they were very, very good parents. Oh, that also doesn't add up with the continuity. In what way? That the old lady that she meets that knew her when she was a child... 
knew her as Donna. Well, that's the thing. We find out that that is just a total coincidence. Oh, that's the doll's name? No, it is also Donna's name. And it's the doll's name? I'm so confused now. Understandably. So I think what's going on is that it's just this huge coincidence that Donna's name, she chose a name at random, and that name was Donna Troy when she was like 16 or 17 or so. Mm -hmm. And coincidentally, that name happened to be her actual name. What are the odds of that? One wouldn't think very good. Mm -hmm. Maybe there was some subconscious shit going on. But it's also kind of like, it makes for kind of an anticlimactic reveal where it's like, I've been going my whole life by the name of Donna, but now I need to know who I really am and find out what my real name is. Well, we found out what your real name is, Donna, and your real name is Donna. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, okay, well, carry on. I guess I won't need to get any of my monograms changed. Well, thank goodness for that. Yeah, saves us some money. Spend that on free sodas. That's right. The other bit of confusion there is that I'm pretty sure from reading this that her name as a toddler was Donna. Right. We also see that Robin was able to reconstruct a name tag from this doll that he salvaged out of the burning building that said, hello, my name is Donna. Mm -hmm. So either Wonder Girl was attending some kind of a toddler conference as a kid. That was her name tag. (laughs) That was her name tag. Just like doing some toddler networking, you know, keeping up on the latest in juice boxes and pooping your pants. Right. (laughs) (laughs) The other alternative, which is I think what is actually happening, is we do see that the doll has a name tag on it that says, hi, my name is Donna. Mm -hmm. Which is also kind of weird, but that means that Donna was given a doll named Donna. Mm -hmm. Or that Donna named her doll. Donna, which just seems like a weird choice. Yeah, I don't get it. I don't really either. Now, that doll had been repaired by Uncle Max of Mystic Mountain, Newport News. Mm -hmm. So Newport News is the name of the town? Hmm. Well, Mystic Mountain's the name of the toy shop. Right. Newport News must be the name of the town. That's a really weird name for a town. I know. You'd think that's like what the town's newspaper would be called i wonder if it was supposed to be newport new jersey or something and it got shortened or said some ah. point but maybe newport news is like a company town that's owned by the newspaper mm. and it's just like all reporters who have to live in the company town slaving away in the news mine and having to uh spend all of their money at the company store to get these dolls who are then repaired for the orphans by uncle Uncle Max. Max. He seemed nice. He seemed very nice. I really liked Uncle Max. He did seem a little bit, I don't know, if you did all of this volunteer work for an orphanage in your town, and then the orphanage was shut down because of a scandal involving potential child slavery, I think I might want to know some more of the details about that. But he's pretty like, oh yeah, I think something happened with them. There was something about child slavery. I don't know. That's a good point, because, yeah, he seemed like somebody that was very much involved in the community and the well-being of these children, and yeah. for him to just be like, hmm, slavery. There was some kind of thing with child slavery, uh, I don't know. Anyway, uh, yeah, this is a nice doll, um, a really nice stitch work on it. I can repair that. Yeah, let, let's, I, I want to take a look at his exact phraseology, oh, because man. I found it kind of jarring. Your stock is going down in my book, Uncle Max. 
Oh, Willowbrook was closed down almost 15 years ago. Some sort of child slavery scandal. (laughs) (laughs) He is way too laid back about (laughs) that. Yeah! You know how these things are. That's how it goes in a company town. Well, yeah, he is rather old, so maybe he's like, you know, in my generation, we all had to work in the rope factory. Yeah, you know how old people are always talking about having to work in the rope factory when they were growing up. That was actually my my maternal grandfather. Oh, really? Yeah. Melvin Pettit. Rest his soul. Awesome guy. Had to take over as head of household at age 15 and leave school and go to literally work in the cordage factory. Wow. Take care of business. So, yeah. Some sort of... Did they have a good, like, doll repairman at the uh, the rope factory? I don't think so. I don't think so. Back in rope factory, New Hampshire? (laughs) Company town. We get a little moment that I kind of enjoyed that was when Donna and Dick are talking fairly early on in the comic book. They're discussing their various upbringing and mentorships. Besides, Wonder Woman had me appointed her legal ward. As I was with the Batman. Only you never seemed less linked to your mentor as I was with mine. And then Donna responds, The Batman was more like your father. It cracks me up a little bit anytime anybody refers to Batman as the Batman. Mm -hmm. But when it's his adopted son, it's especially like, Oh, that's both oddly formal and just like distant, you know? It's almost a performative saying like, I'm not that close with him. Mm-hmm. on Robin's part kind of like when kids like when they reach a certain age will like experiment with and I know you just did this but with calling your parents by their first name instead of mom or dad mm-hmm. like I know you always called Jim Jim mm-hmm. but I never had that with either of my parents and like it sounds the way the same way when Robin refers to Batman as not Bruce or Batman but the Batman yeah I actually noticed that as well that it seemed in some ways too like a honorific having that. yeah yeah, like, oh, it's a Pronoun. it's a title that gets mm-hmm. conferred. And I, I mean, at this point now, there have been several different Batman. Mm-hmm. But at the time when this was published, there was just a Batman. Mm-hmm. So the Batman seems, yeah, it makes it seem more like an honorific and uh, like the Godfather. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's funny. That's, you know, like when I would want to show respect for dad, I'd call him the gym. <laughs> uh, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that has actually caused some confusion in our relationship because now that, you know, I'm in my 40s, I call him dad. Yeah. And he still signs his card sometimes, Jim slash dad. <laughs> it's like, sorry, man, I don't know what I was thinking. That's cute. There's a, there's a fair amount of that in, like, with my name, too. Like, mm. my mom still will often correct herself and be like, oh, that's right, you go by hub now. And it's like, <laughs> no, it's fine, mom, you, you named me, you can... Mm-hmm. You can call me Nathan. That's It's not like an identity thing. It's just a nickname. Mm-hmm. I don't have to go by a mononym. But it is cute when they try to remember that. It is cute. Yeah. I wish Robin would just call him Bats. <laughs> Batty. Bats. <laughs> Batso. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet he does sometimes call him Bats. I and I bet that really pisses I Batman off. Sure it ticks him off. <laughs> So there is a period of time where Robin, or Dick Grayson, does take over the mantle of Batman, relatively recently. But I wonder if during that, if people tried to call him the Batman, if he was like, no, 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 the Batman was my dad. Call me Batman. (laughs) (laughs) So Robin goes out and stops staring wistfully off into the sunset of his apartment 
and reminiscing about the time when he was staring off thoughtfully into the sunset on the coast, I guess, near a lighthouse somewhere. Yep. Maybe he was just hoping to hang out with Aqualad, and that was what he was thinking about while he was staring off into the water. I miss that kid. (sighs) I think we all do. I think Dick does, too. But not Aqualad, but Terry Long comes up behind him, and they have a fun kind of interchange where Terry's like, oh shit, he's staring off wistfully into the middle distance. I know how that is with superhero types. I'm sorry, buddy, I'm not interrupting you, am I? And he's like, no, I was just staring off into the middle distance. And Terry's like, yeah, was I interrupting you? Yes, but it's okay, everybody does. I thought that was a fun exchange. But it's followed up by Terry asking Dick to intercede and use his detective skills because Donna's identity has been really bothering her. And initially she was hesitant to accept his marriage proposal until she knew who her parents were. And I think she kind of put that on the back burner, but he knows it's still bothering her. And he would like Dick to look into it for him. So then they head over to Donna's apartment and share the fact that uh, Terry has officially asked Robin to look into this matter for him. And Donna is hesitant to take him up on his offer, first of all, because she's like, look, I've been looking into this for the past four years and I haven't found anything. You're not going to find anything. Which I get, but also Robin is a very good detective and has a lot of detective skills, which he actually uses in this issue. Something that he doesn't do very often. It's mostly like, I'm going to solve the crime of how I'm going to kick you in the face. Right. And the answer is usually, oh, it's a savat kick, because that's his favorite. He is an acrobat and a, what do you call somebody that does a savateur? Uh, an idiot savat? <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Zing, there's our bozone for the, hang on, <laughs> oh. use that one. But he's a, he's a real good detective, so it's nice of him to, to offer to look into it. It does seem a little bit weird that Terry is contacting her friend and asking him to do a favor for her. But I don't know. I, I, I could see myself doing something similar where yeah. I'm like, you know, Hub really wants to know who his real parents are. So sure. I have sure. this detective friend that Hub's also friends with. But I don't think Hub's going to like feel gonna yeah. feel weird or he doesn't want to deal with it. So I'll just butt in and yeah take care of business. That's very sweet. You're Corey. welcome. <laughs> <laughs> You're a real Terry Long, buddy. Thanks. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but honestly, Terry Long comes across pretty good in this issue. And we've discussed a lot in the past how he's often kind of creepy. Mm-hmm. Either he will say creepy stuff like when he like kind of hits on Starfire in front of Donna in a kind of jokey way, but also in a kind of creepy way. And there is the fact that I believe he met as her professor and they are definitely in different stages of their life. And he's a college professor dating a teenager, which just feels kind of creepy. That being said, there are aspects of their relationship that I really like. One of those is the fact that she has superpowers and he is a civilian, which is something that doesn't come up in comic books very often. It comes up very often where those gender roles are reversed, where Mm -hmm. there will be a super-powered dude who is dating a civilian lady. I like that that dynamic is reversed. Um, I still feel it is more than a little bit offset by the different kind of power dynamic that is him being a divorced college professor and her being a teenage girl. But they seem to, in this issue, have a pretty decent relationship, and he is caring and supportive and not jealous and pretty good dude. It does raise a different issue in this issue for me. Hmm. I think 
we've kind of established that Terry Long is a stand-in for Marv Wolfman. Mm -hmm. It really seems like that is the case. So in this issue, Robin talks about how great Terry, a dude Terry Long is. So he's kind of Cameron Crowing it. Like, in all of Cameron Crowe's movies, there is a character who is an obvious analog for Cameron Crowe, and there is at least one scene where all of the other characters will sit around and talk about how great the Cameron Crowe character is, and how amazing he is, and what a wonderful person he is. It definitely stood out the most in Almost Famous, in which the character is literally Cameron Crowe Mm -hmm. as a younger man, because it's an autobiographical film, and, like, you have several scenes where all of the other characters talk about how wonderful and brilliant and sensitive he is. Mm-hmm. You get kind of that impression in this issue with me when Robin's talking about what a wonderful dude Terry Long is, where Terry Long, I think, is supposed to be Marv Wolfman. There is on page six, like when that that sort of revelation is taking place, uh, a series of panels that are like, if it were cinematic, would be matched to action cuts, mm-hmm. where like it's a, a handshake, zooms into a kiss, zooms into Robin's eyeball. Yeah. And the way in which they're intersected together... It makes it look like Robin is smooching. It's very confusing at first, because I was like, wait, does Robin want to kiss Terry? Or they were... What's happening? And then I figured it out. You you parse it together pretty quickly, I think, that it's, okay, Robin is shaking hands with Terry Long, thinking about what a great guy Terry Long is. Then he sees Donna kissing Terry, and is watching it a little bit too... With a really big, creepy eyeball. But yeah, especially where it being comic books, the fact that he and Donna have similar hair color, it is just like, oh, wait, is he just smooching Terry Long? Well, he thinks about, I'd always wondered what Donna saw in an ordinary man like Terry Long. But at that moment, I knew. And it is funny because that's all taking place with the kiss and the staring at the kiss. Uh Uh-huh. And it does make it seem like Robin is a little bit, I don't know, jealous of one or both of those people. Yeah. It is also the last panel of the the triptych of, like, cut to actions is Robin with his hand on the door handle. And that could be read as either him letting himself out of the apartment or of him going and locking the door. (laughs) Yeah. The three of us need a little bit of privacy. Whoa, 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 whoa. Terry tries to formalize the arrangement where Robin is looking into Donna's past And says, so what do you charge for your detective skills? I want to hire you for this case. And Robin says, you know what? Don't worry about it. It'll be my engagement present to you guys. Kind of a sweet sentiment. On the other hand, dude is a billionaire. (laughs) Mm. So he is taking his wedding present off the table with that. I wonder if Donna and Terry exchange to look into that. It's like, no, 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 no. That's cool, man. We registered for some pretty nice shit. Really wanted that Instant Pot. Yeah, well, I mean, dude, it's like going to be a jewel-encrusted Instant Pot. Or, like, he could have bought him a car or something. He's super, super rich. Top-of-the-line stand mixer. (laughs) Okay. All of the sausage attachments. (laughs) Oh, man, all of them? All of them. Whoa. That's you're looking at. It's a lot of money. Probably a couple million dollars. It's a lot of sausages. Have you ever offered a service as a wedding present? No. I have. I've, I've performed weddings, a wedding as a wedding present. Well, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. what I felt like. Yeah, Plus, I mean, I'm not a billionaire. Right. So you're like, I can't afford that stand mixer. Right. But it's also like... I'll just marry you guys. Yeah, exactly. Huh. There is almost an aspect of it just like, it's like, you know what I'm going to do for your wedding present? I'm going to write you guys a song. <laughs> oh. 
<laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna write you guys a poem. Oh. <laughs> Do you think any of the other Teen Titans have offered that as a service? Songs or poems? songs or poems or uh, in as a wedding present. Mm. I'm trying to think. Like I don't think any of the Titans are that kind of a jerk. I don't know. I can see Wally being like, I got this old ditty back from the Flips days. <laughs> you will love it. I don't think so. I mean, Walt, this Wally at least doesn't see himself as an artist. The Honestly, I hate to say it, but the only one of the Titans I could see actually doing that, and just out of a sense of naivete, is Aqualad. Oh. I bet it'd be a really good song, though. Yeah. I Plus, it's not like the dude has a job. If he doesn't, it's just going to be a bunch of shells or something. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. I made you this jewelry. Yeah, or, I bet he could find some cool stuff on the ocean floor. I'm sure. Maybe just like treasure chest. Mm-hmm. Here you go. Yeah. Or like maybe like an interesting historical artifact because uh, Terry Long is a professor of history. Ah. I bet Aqualad gives pretty decent wedding presents. I, I don't mean to impugn him there. Case of doubloons. Yep. Gold doubloons. I hope so. Best kind we got. Only None of those silver know, doubloons. I don't even that's know. probably what Speedy would try to give. Mm. These are brass doubloons. No thanks. Pretty impressive uh, doll restoration uh, Uncle Max does. He's pretty good at it. It seems impossible. Well, I mean, I don't think it's any more implausible than the doll restoration that Dick did, though. He's just an amateur. I... He had a microscope and chemicals. Why do you assume that Uncle Max doesn't have a microscope or chemicals? Because he's just a toy maker. He's it's a toy fixer and it's a toy. He has a lot of experience at toy repair. All right, toy fixers of the world, I'm sorry that I impugned your profession assuming yeah, you had neither microscopes nor chemicals to work with. They use microscopes and chemicals all the time. Haven't you ever been to a Build-A-Bear workshop? <laughs> what? Super high tech. Who's Build-A-Bear? Oh, it's a phrase. Build-A-Bear oh, workshop. I it's see. a workshop where you build a stuffed bear. I thought it was like a self-help thing. No, no. It was confusing for me the first time I heard about it because I thought it was Bilderberg workshop. Bilderberg? Yeah, some kind of banking conspiracy shit that I'm unfamiliar with. Oh. But it's not that. So you went? No. So how do you know they have microscopes and chemicals, man? Because that's how you build bears. That's not true. I'm pretty sure. If anybody out there is a bear builder, <laughs> please send your retort to Hub. <laughs> That's 22 Podcast Lane, <laughs> care of the internet. But Dick does an amazing job with that restoration, and that restoration scene is actually really cool. It's one of the first times we see Dick really employing the methodology of a scientific detective that he would have learned from Batman, and like using the computer to reconstruct what this message probably was after like getting out his paleontology brushes and dusting off the sides of shit it's really fun and he talks about how painstaking it is and a lot of his detective work in this like that and when he gets the blueprints to the housing unit that donna used to live in and talks about how like they used to have coal bins in apartments and she probably didn't think to check in there it's gibberish i'm pretty confident but it is the kind of gibberish that is like yeah this is some cool detective shit that makes him seem smarter and able to figure out things that I wouldn't have been able to figure out. Like, that's cool. The rapidity with which things unfold once 
Donna meets the old lady that knows her name is Donna. Yeah. And then it just is like, bam, bam, bam. Like, adopted, adopted again. Something bad happened. Adopted again. Yeah. Meet these guys. Hey, they're actually pretty cool. Let's hang out and look at photo albums together. And the fact that the guy, Hank, who was the yeah. father of her first, second adopted mother. Uh-huh. Oh, you mean heterosexual John Waters? <laughs> yes. Heterosexual <laughs> John Waters. As Hank is... I, I could not think of anybody but John Waters that when, I, when good, I saw him. That is a good he is he has a pencil thin mustache and severe male pattern baldness and is a thin man wearing a uh, a tight yellow polo shirt tucked into his checked slacks. He looked so John Watersy to me, and I was he he seemed like a really cool dude. Like is immediately like, oh, you had adopted a daughter and then given that daughter back up for adoption after your first husband died, and you keep these secret photo albums of your previous family and look at them at night? Okay. That's cool. Call me dad or Hank, whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Just don't call me late for dinner. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I'm going to go rake up these leaves using an inappropriate rake. Seriously, he should be using a fan rake for the type of uh, leaf raking that he's doing and not the kind that when you step on it flips up and hits you in the head. That has happened to me. I It happened to my boss the other day. Really? <laughs> he came in with a black eye from it. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. But anyway, like that, that uh, doing leaf raking with that type of a, a rake, very, very difficult. I, I think that's more of a gardening style rake. Maybe he was just not from the Northeast originally or someplace where they didn't have a lot of leaves. Could be. Could be. Anyway, yeah, that was my only point was that like uh, Hank, heterosexual John Waters, seems like a good dude. Yeah, I agree. And also, wow, what a lot of information really fast. And Donna seems to... Everybody okay seems it. to process it very quickly and very effectively. I mean, that is kind of Donna's deal. It is keeping in track with it. It's like, oh, you find out something new and crazy and potentially traumatic about your past? Deal with it. Grief counselor Donna Troy on the case doing her own work. She is amazing. Mm-hmm. She's a real wonder. Uh-huh. <laughs> Well, are you ready to get into the minutia? Yes. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Corey. Yes. Sartorially speaking, which instances of fashion in this issue do you feel are worthy of note? There were three. Very good. And what were they? The first and the top of the list is Donna's get-up with that bumblebee shirt and the green jeans and the green scarf that offsets it. It is a sassy look. What a look. She's like a teenage Rhoda from uh, the Mary Tyler Moore show. <laughs> yep, she pulls it off with aplomb. Mm-hmm. Very, very nice. There were a lot to choose from in this issue, but I decided to go with my three are all Dick Grayson-based. Okay, I might have one of those. Okay. First of all, his trench coat. This is the first instance we have seen in this comic book, I believe, of someone using a trench coat not as a disguise, but as cosplay, more or less. He's like, yeah, I'm doing detective stuff, so I'm going to put on a trench coat. It's not to conceal his identity. In fact, there are odd scenes in which he is wearing the trench coat over his Robin uniform, including Ooh. on the cover, which is like, no, you're wearing a detective uniform over a detective uniform. Also, with the short pants and all, it makes it look like he's, he's maybe he's up a, to no a good. A flasher. Yeah. Yeah. But I appreciate, he's like, I'm doing detective things, so I'm going to dress like a TV detective. And I thought that was kind of fun. Okay. 
So the other Dick Grayson look that I thought was pretty cool was the three-piece suit from ah. straight from the 80s. It absolutely is, especially during the sequences where it ceases to be a three-piece suit, and he is wearing it as a two-piece suit with the vest and the slacks. He looks like one of the, like a bad guy from a Wall Street movie. Oh, totally. He's got like, maybe not but, quite aviator sunglasses, but something like that. And I kept thinking vest. in that those sunglasses should have those little leather pouches on the side. You know, you know what I mean? Like, oh. I think there were Bole was the manufacturer where they had the leather mm. sun shields on the side of the glasses. Yeah, like the Arctic things. Yeah. I thought he should have been wearing those, but it's a cool look. And I, th- I thought it was actually a pretty good look for him. I'm a little bit partial. I had one of the things I had written down was uh, Dick's vest because he wears a couple of different vests in this. He has that early three-piece suit that he wears. And then he has the second three-piece suit that he wears when they visit the grave of Donna's birth mother, where he's wearing a nice yellow checked vest. You probably remember I went through a period where I wore, started to say a lot of vests, but to be fair, I wore a lot of vest because <laughs> I just had the one and I wore it pretty much every day. Eighth grade, I think, I was inadvertently cosplaying as a sassy young Paula Poundstone. Wearing a a vest and a battered brown felt fedora every day of eighth grade. Oh no! Yeah, Uh, I haven't heard you use that that description before. It's an apt one, isn't it? it, Yeah. mm. Oh, hub! It was a different time (laughs) when everybody was wonderful. (laughs) We may have slightly different recollections of the early nineties. Yeah, but yeah, I I liked the uh, I liked Dick's vests. Yeah, so I had his two vests, and I had his trench coat. What was your third? Ah, my third was the aforementioned Hank, a.k.a. heterosexual John Waters, and that crazy-ass yellow shirt. Yeah. Because, yes, it's a polo shirt, but it is a polo shirt that was, I think, in transition between 70s and 80s, where Mm. the collars were in the process of downsizing, but were still really quite significant. Yeah. And it's a good look. He looks cool. He does. He looks like a cool, cool dude. Yep. And he is a cool, cool dude. Mm-hmm. I like th- I like that Hank. He makes a dad joke, like his first introduction, like all this crazy shit happens. Donna shows up and like his kids are like, who's that lady, dad? That mom's hugging and everybody's crying. And he's like, I only live here. <laughs> yeah. Don't ask me. I just live here. <laughs> yeah, he is 100% good stepdad. Mm-hmm. It's nice to see. Moving along, let's hit what is perhaps the most difficult section of this comic book. Corey, what was your favorite sound effect? This is maybe the most difficult. There are some very difficult categories to fill in this the one. The Bozone in this one and the Speedy yeah. are the three that yeah. really bothered me. Well, we'll burn those bridges when we get to them. But first up, what, what was your favorite sound effect? On page 14, mm-hmm. there is a elderly woman at a nursing home who mm-hmm. had been either through aphasia or for some other reason unable to speak since she was checked into the place for the last decade or so and when donna hands her this little really pretty creepy looking doll she says do donna do donna and uh it's not a sound effect it's dialogue but the last donna is red and big hand-drawn letters so yeah that's what i got (laughs) that's fair i like that lady she seems pretty chill yeah yeah took in stride she was cleared of all charges related to child slavery which is nice yes so you know she's aces in my book Mm -hmm. 
But yeah, she immediately goes from not being able to speak to kind of not being able to shut up uh, and remembering all of the details of Donna's adoption and recognizing her immediately, despite the fact that it's been like, I guess not that long. I keep forgetting that Donna is supposed to be a teenager, so I guess 15 years ago? Hmm. But recognizes this full-grown woman as the toddler she used to be. Not easy, man. No, no. Impressive. Yeah, there were no overt sound effects in this issue. Like, there just weren't any. I went over every page. I went over all of the ads that were in, like, comic format, and there weren't any in those either. So I decided to go with what I believe is an implied sound effect. It's a different interpretation than may have been intended of the opening and closing segments where we see that Dick is pushing play on this tape recorder as he goes over the events of the case. Mm -hmm. I choose to believe that he is not, in fact, playing back recordings of his own voice. He is just talking to himself as he plays the tape recorder and what the tape recorder is playing is Baker Street by Jerry Rafferty. <laughs> because that is what it looks like is playing in the background of those pages. There is Doesn't nothing it? else There's nothing else I could be playing. <laughs> so that is my favorite sound effect is the saxophone solo from Jerry Rafferty's Baker Street that is almost certainly playing in the background of the opening and closing uh, pages of this book. It was the 80s, and you do not get to see an opening or closing segment without hearing that saxophone bit. Agreed. Acknowledged. So that was my favorite sound effect. Sustained. Well, we had talked about the other difficult categories. Let's move over to the Bozone. Corey, in this issue, what instance of one character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, would you like to focus on? Yeah, this was a stretch as well. I had to go through a couple times, but I did find an insult. Okay. And it is when Robin and Wendy are interviewing the lady who lives in the basement of the apartment. That we have the same one. Do we? Okay. Yes. Creepy lady, couple dogs. <laughs> talking about her dead ex-husband, Sam. Mm -hmm. And she says of Sam, rest his soul, he was a creep. <laughs> yep. That's what, that's what you had to. That was what I had to. Okay. It's weird that that lady's arc is weird because she looks like just like a mean older lady who's probably a scumbag, like you see a lot of times. But you do see her being very loving and caring towards these two dogs that she has. Mm -hmm. And that, I was like, oh, I thought she was... I mean, I know bad people can be nice to dogs too, but you're not... As used to seeing it. <laughs> Good point. I mean, in comic books, generally, it's you get kind of more one-note characters. Mm -hmm. So I would have expected, given the rest of her character, to see her just kind of kicking the dogs or something. Yeah, or just be like, I have a thousand cats. Yeah, and I, I kicked them, too. I don't feed them enough. No. And they pee on everything, and it's creepy. Yeah, and then I blame other people for peeing on the stuff. But it was my cats. Mm -hmm. I, I was like, ah, somebody broke into my house and peed on my rug. Like, don't, don't you have, like, 50 cats? Yeah, but I can tell. Mm. Well, I hate that lady we just invented. Yeah. <laughs> it's gross. Yeah. Ah, let's make a clean sweep of the ones we're having difficulty with. So, in every issue of a Teen Titans comic, there is an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, and also a Speedy, the worst of Teen Titans. 
so for the speedy, I know we haven't seen him for a long time, so it's probably not okay to pick actual speedy for speedy. But? So in light of that, I didn't. I picked oh, another okay. character that was not present. Okay. And that's Wally, because we've been shitting on him for the last couple months, and so let's just add more to the pile. Fuck that guy. Quit or go home. Make up your fucking mind, man. Presumably, he still has not left the team that he did quit. Yep. Yeah. So, sorry, that's, that's all like, I couldn't, there was two people to there work two with, people and they, and they, they were they both great. Fine. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I went with Beast Boy. <laughs> I'm pretty, well, he was really shitty about, uh... Donna gaining on him in the orphan leaderboard. Oh, that is true. <laughs> That's a weird thing to be shitty about. It is, but man, that beast boy. What can you do? He's very insecure. He has, he, he's like, no, having multiple sets of parrots die on you is my thing, Donna. Mm. Oh. Yeah. And then he probably like, I don't know, tried to, tried to touch her butt or something. Mm. Creepy. Yep. Not cool, beast boy. I hate that thing that you probably did that I just decided you did. And that is why Beast Boy is my speedy. All right. Conversely, who was your Aqualad? I had to go Wood Robin. As did I. This is, what, two in a row? Where I I've given so. Robin the thumbs up. This is a weird and disturbing trend. We're in a brave new world, Corey, that has such Aqualad choices in it. I know, I know. The thing is, I picked him not because of his awesome detective work, which was awesome. Mm -hmm. But because he realized at the beginning, and then he followed through at the end, that he'd been a total butthead to Starfire. Yep. And I was like, fucking finally, dude. Yeah. No, I I had him for a number of reasons. Uh, but that was definitely foremost amongst them, is him realizing what a dick he's been to Starfire and actually calling her and starting to try to make good with her. Uh, I appreciated that. He did very good detective work throughout the issue. And also dealt with Donna very sensitively um, in terms of I don't want to get her hopes up about this one lead that I might have because I know that she's had her hopes up many times before so I'll wait until I follow through a little bit more. I think he made a number of decisions like that that he handled pretty appropriately and was pretty sensitive about Donna's feelings. He wore a lot of nice vests which I appreciate. He's no Paula Poundstone. But... No, and he's no me in eighth grade, but he still wore some very nice vests, which I approved of. You know, I approve of the fact that he decided to start and end his day by playing uh, the saxophone solo from Jerry Rafferty's Baker Street while he talked to himself. So, for those reasons, Robin is my Aqualad. <laughs> Your imagination has had a big impact on these, these uh, minutia choices. But... It often does. What was your timestamp? I had a toss-up between two, both of which are a bit of a stretch. I think I'll go with the one that's less of a stretch. Okay. And that's that as part of Robin's detective work, he has a computer in uh -huh. his detective headquarters that he feeds some little scraps of paper with numbers on them, uh, letters mm -hmm. on them into the computer, and it takes some time, it rearranges them, and, you know, like those, those anagram makers on sure. the internet. You just type in a bunch of letters, and they tell you, they give you a big list of words right away. Uh -huh. This didn't happen right away. It took the computer seven hours and 36 minutes to come up with an 18-letter phrase. <laughs> and that's my timestamp, because okay. that's probably... I don't actually even think it we had the processing less power time. to do that at that point. But that was, you know... Yeah. They were thinking, oh, yeah, if you could do it, it would probably take this long. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. Uh, the one that I went with was also Robin-related, as many things in this issue are going to be either Robin or Don related. They're the only two Teen Titans in it. I went with his tape recorder device, which came complete with when you do a close-up, it 
proudly proclaims that it features an auto-stop function, which means that when the <laughs> tape reaches its end, it will stop trying to play it and not mangle the tape, which I have to believe fairly... First of all, there's the fact that he's using a tape recorder at all as his means of recording, but the fact that auto-stop would be an advertised feature rather than assumed puts it pretty early in the tape recording days. So I went with the auto-stop feature on Robin's tape recorder. It's a good feature. I had a pretty sweet Panasonic uh, boombox in the in the 80s that uh -huh. had auto-stop. Nice. It's actually a huge... Did it have auto-rewind, too? No, no. But... I, I remember it was a, some like a, a birthday or like one of those gift giving events and mm -hmm. my parents were like, what do you want? And I said, I either want a Walkman or a boombox. When I said boombox, what I was thinking of was like from Beat Street or... Oh, Break sure. And, like like the giant one that has the, the equalizer on the side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that takes like a thousand D batteries. Like, right. That was really what I had my hopes gotcha. set on. My dad did a lot of research. No. Yep. And got one that was like the most awesome sounding like highest performing like it was really sweet but it was about but it was not six, big enough six inches tall and you know <laughs> a couple feet long and didn't have the same visual impact no. when you walked around of, with it I, on your shoulder my first experiences of being super disappointed but also realizing that that, was that you're not... the asshole in the situation yes. yeah <laughs> yeah i still haven't figured out appropriately how to deal with that but that's the first try yeah well, I applaud you for at least trying to deal with that. It's a difficult sensation to come to terms with. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for your applause. Oh, yes. I wish I had one of those big old boom boxes. They were, they were so, so cool. cool. I love those totally useless equalizers with the little lights in the background. Ah, you just they were so useful. Make them into a wave. Obviously, like I think most people, my first reaction to having those uh, access to those as a kid was just like, oh, if I want it to sound good, I will turn them all all the way up. All right. Which, you know, is completely stupid. Yeah, it's okay. It makes it as loud as it can go. I think that was the point. I mean, you want your single of Baby Got Back that has the B-side Cake Boy to be playing as loud as possible. Is single a cassette single? Yes. I did not know that word. Ah, it's a good word. Mm. I subjected Tina to a Sir Mix-a-Lot video the other day. Oh, which one? Posse's on Broadway. That is a good song. Yep. Do you know why he wrote that song? Because mm, his posse was on Broadway? Sort of, but it was also like a shameless capitalistic maneuver because he had visited a number of cities and noticed that they all had a street called Broadway. And he's like, so I could sell this album in Phoenix? I can sell it in Portland? I can sell it in San Francisco? I can sell it in New York? All these places have a Broadway that all think I'm talking about them. I have memories, maybe fabricated, of people driving down Broadway Street in downtown Portland playing that song. Well, well done, Sir Mix-a-Lot. I'm so glad he got knighted. Me too. <laughs> Corey, what was your favorite panel? We already talked about the opening and closing ones being pretty awesome, mm -hmm. but I think the closing one on page 21, I call it Night City. Yeah. Is maybe taking the cake. Uh, that was the main one that I had written down. It's that and the one next to it, uh, which I call Sunset Phone Call, or the one immediately preceding it. But yeah, that sunset is so... So cool looking and so 80s looking and so noir looking all at the same time. It's rad. I, yeah, I think I got to go with that one. The one immediately preceding it is Dick making the phone call to Corey while there's the sunset in the background through the window. But the cityscape is dope. I think that's my favorite too. Nice. Nice indeed. 
Well, I think that wraps up the majority of the minutiae, Corey. But I am left with but one question I must put to you. Mm. Wapoot! Corey, in the year of our Lord, 1984, and the month of our Lord, January, what was Aqualad probably up to? I'm glad you asked. One would think that he was probably spending a lot of time maybe not goofing off, doing research, figuring out how to set up his new Mac, mm-hmm. uh, his Apple personal computer, 128K computer that, that, that came out. It came out in late January of that year. Yes, it did. Mm-hmm. However, what? in early January, something happened that was a bit of a distraction for him, and that was that on the 4th was was the premiere <laughs> of Night Court. Yeah. And let me tell you, he just got, like, really into the antics of Judge Harry Stone and Bull and everybody. And it was all he could do but watch Night Court every day. Not every day, because it was only on once a week. That's fair. All through the month of January. So by the time late January rolled around, he got his Mac. He was super excited about it, but he just had to keep watching Night Court. (laughs) Very good. Man, that theme song's great. It is one of the best. It's, I would put it a little bit below the Barney Miller theme song. They're similar, though. They are. There is some similarities, and it's very easy to end up doing a medley of the two songs when you go to start singing one. That's a beautiful mashup. Thank you. The other one that I can keep doing inadvertently is if I go to uh, hum either the Superman theme song to myself or the Police Academy theme song, they end up merging into one. I can't remember what either of them are. Okay. Superman is... Ah, shit. All I can think of is the, the Police Academy one. <laughs> that always happens. Uh... <laughs> Sing that one, then. Okay. I think they both have a part in it. How does the Superman one go? You're the best around. No, that's a different song. Oh, okay. He is Superman. He is very super, yeah. But it's not You're the Best Around by Joe B. Nesposito. I was pretty sure that was a song. <laughs> no, I think Superman's the one that goes. Dun, 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 dun. Nope, that's oh, Police that's Academy Police again. Academy. Well, we'll never know how the Superman theme song goes. Well, the other major television event that Aqualad watched in January of 1984 was in previous months. We have talked about how Aqualad and Aquaman had placed some sports bets with each other, mostly on tennis, with mm-hmm, various mm-hmm. results. But in January of 1984, the two decided to sit down and not bet on a very popular sporting event, the Super Bowl. Super Bowl 18, I believe it was, between the Raiders and the Washington racial slurs. Wait, are they still called that? They are still called that. What the fuck? Yeah, I don't fucking know, man. America. Yeah, get with it. But Aqualad and Aquaman sat down, enjoyed the game, and more than that, enjoyed the commercials of the game mm-hmm. because there was the iconic apple commercial that was 1984 themed that aired during the super bowl and aqualad was just blown away by it it's really cool it's the one where the lady ends up flinging the sledgehammer through the video screen mm-hmm. and 
Aqualad was just very, very impressed and was just like, man, I want to watch more, more commercials be made. It also did impress him with the Apple products, and he and Aquaman did go and buy a Macintosh for their underwater cave. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But he also was like, man, I got to find out more about how commercials are made. So he found the biggest commercial that was being made. It was just a few days later. He used his... Uh, his superhero connections, and got on the set of a Pepsi commercial. Oh, no. Featuring oh, no. a certain pop star. <laughs> oh, I know what happened. Now, Aqualad was just interning. He was just kind of sitting this out, and the lights were very, very bright, and there were pyrotechnics going off, and he quickly found himself getting overheated. So he found an emergency bucket of water that was standing by, and he dumped that over his head. Oh, no. Which turned out to be problematic because a few minutes later, Michael Jackson, due to a pyrotechnics malfunction, had his hair catch on fire and ran backstage looking for that bucket of water and it was nowhere to be found. He ended up being rushed to the hospital with second and third degree burns. And that was what Aqualad was probably up to. He felt really bad about it. This is out of character. He'd normally... You know, uh, he, saving people, well, except for Jim Morrison. But. Yeah, he he does his best, but he was dehydrated, and there was water sitting right there. And Where was yeah. Beaky? Where was Beaky, indeed. Mm. Indeed. Tune in next week. Well, thank you so much for joining us, listeners. This was a real hoot. Woo. Yeah, like that. Thank you so much for listening to us, and if you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter and on Faced Books and all of the places that the internet has to offer. If you'd like to leave us a review on whatever iTunes calls itself now, well, you should do that. That sounds nice. Or whatever podcatcher you use to listen to our program. It helps people find the show, and that is something I think that it would be nice for them to do. If you would like to contribute monetarily to our efforts, you can do so at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. I would appreciate that. Corey, this is the third year birthday of our show. Holy mackerel, really? Yeah, by the time this episode airs, we will have gone on the air three years ago. Unbelievable. Yeah. What a weird-ass trip it's been. Thank you for joining us on it, listeners. And, uh, well, hell, if you want to get us a birthday present, (laughs) there's that Patreon page. Man, this has been so much fun, and I love getting a chance to talk to you and getting to hang out with my brother every week and having a nice time it is a nice time good well sam rest his soul was a creep (laughs) the batman was my dad call me batman and they knew it Did you have Aqualad sing the uh, Police Academy theme song? <laughs> <laughs> you tell me, man. What is he up to? Is he? I mean, he's watching Night Court. Oh, right, right. Night Court's a good show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>